Welcome to Concord Matters, a show seeking for concord, agreement in Christian confession. Concord mattered to Jesus and Paul, and so it does to us also. Spend these next 60 minutes as we talk matters of Concord. Concord Matters, a program produced by the Christ-Centered Leader in Confessional Broadcasting. Worldwide KFUO, online at kfuo.org. And welcome to Concord Matters, the show where we seek to be of one mind, that is the mind of Christ. And to do that, a couple of Christ-confessing Concordians confer with the Book of Concord to conform what we believe, teach, and confess according to Scripture in our Lutheran Confession of Faith. On today's show, we are continuing our series, The Catechized Life, and looking at the Creed. Today, the first and third articles. I'm your host, Pastor Sean Smith, pastor of the Evangelical Lutheran Co-Parish of Emmanuel West Point and St. Paul's Wine Hill in Southern Illinois. And our catechist for this series is Pastor Mark Bestel. He is pastor of Calvary Lutheran Church in Elgin, Illinois. Pastor Bestel, you set up as we entered into the Creed, you took us directly into the second article. Of course, as we all know, the first article relating to God the Father and creation would generally be where we would start as we are going just straight through the catechism from the Ten Commandments and then into the Creed with the first article. But as you set up for us the last couple weeks, really, but then we unpacked it last week with the second article focused on Christ and his work for our salvation, that then reveals to us the work of God as the Trinity for our salvation. And so we want to go ahead and then get this confession all together of who God is as the triune God and his work, not only in redemption as we unfolded in the second article, but also in creation and sanctification. And so let's go ahead and start here with the first article today. So this is, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. Go ahead, Pastor Bestel, and give us our catechesis lesson there on the first article of the Creed. Sure, this first article is such a short article that I'd like to take some time to point out two little words in it that we would often run right past, but probably shouldn't. They're not unique to this article, but because this article is so brief, the little words stand out even more in this article. And those words are the words believe and in. To believe is not a fairy tale imagination. That's how it's been deemed by our society, is that for Christians to believe in God, they're a bunch of superstitious people. But to believe is not a fairy tale imagination. It's not a superstitious lucky charm. It's not a removal from reality into wishful thinking. The word believe should not be thought of in the same way as believing in things like the tooth fairy or the Easter bunny or Santa Claus. It's not a Disney word, as if the I in the word believe should have sort of a dot over the I should be like a shooting star. That's how it would be characterized if it were animated by Disney. But to believe is to trust that this reality and truth benefits me and that I can risk my whole life and being on this marvelous truth. This is why the little word in is so important, because it reminds us that the marvelous truth is something that is outside of me, that is true no matter whether I believe it or not. But the little word in says, I believe in, for example, God the Father Almighty, or more generically, I believe in the triune God, 
that little word in says there's something objectively true out there that I can risk everything on. I'm not believing in myself. I'm not believing in my own theories. I'm not believing in my own story and my own fabricated ideas, but rather I am believing in that which is objectively true. And that objective truth is something that we can appeal to way back all in the first episode. Remember, the very first episode we had in this whole series was about objective truth. And as Pontius Pilate says, what is truth? And Jesus answers that by saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And remain in my word and you will know the truth. And so now to say I believe in means I am holding to this objective truth as being beneficial for me. I can risk my whole life and being and eternal welfare on this God who has made himself known through these three chief acts, creation, redemption, sanctification. And as we sort of hinted at last episode, because we were lost in our sin, we believe nothing of his creating and sanctifying works. We, need, we believe nothing of him being a loving God or even a, a holy God. We didn't fear him. We didn't love him. But now as the redemptive work has been finished, that opens up to us the certain conviction in this loving God's creative work and sanctifying work, which are really Articles 1 and 3. And so to be able to say I believe in means my entire daily life depends upon this. My understanding of worship depends upon this. We'll get into that as we get into the third article of the creed. What does it mean that I believe in a holy triune God? How do I come before the holy, holy, holy with the utmost reverence? Because he's not just my best friend. He's not just a good teacher. He's not just a warm and fuzzy life coach, but rather he is the holy God. How does that define the understanding of what happens every Sunday morning as I come before his altar? And therefore, I believe in what important words to hold on to for all of life and to almost defiantly before the world and joyfully before the world to confess this and say, yes, my life clings to this reality and my life utterly depends upon the reality of this gracious and glorious triune God. And so having already talked about his redemptive work, we can now look more clearly at his creative and sanctifying works. Luther says in the meaning that God has created me and all creatures. And that's a hint at the first seven days, right, to create me and all creatures. And that's no small confession. We live in a day and age in which evolutionary theory, as it's being promoted all over the place, is trying to push the idea of an all-creating God right out of public discourse and eventually right out of our hearts. And so it's no small thing to say, no, I am willing to stand with the scriptures and honestly to stand with true science and say, no, actually everything points to this. And most importantly, the Holy Word specifically tells me God has created all creatures. He is the holy God of the six days of creation. That certainly is hinted at here when Luther says God has created me and all creatures. But also it hints at God's ongoing work of creating each successive generation, no longer by creating what we refer to as ex nihilo, meaning out of nothing, just by speaking, but still at work creating through the good order of his creative plans. 
So when I confess that God created me, as we do in the meaning to the first article, that's not something that happened on day six when he created Adam and Eve. He did not create me back then. He created me, Mark Bestel, some 43 years ago when he knit me in my mother's womb, just as he has created this year's supply of fruit and vegetable harvest. But again, not by speaking into existence ex nihilo, if you will, not by speaking into existence an already full and complete harvest, but by working majestically and quietly through the seed that he safeguarded from last year's crop, every seed and how it packages everything that God has in store for that future plant to produce that future fruit. This is all part of the creative work of God. Uh, Consider how every detail of the mighty maple tree or the oak tree is packed into that little seed and somehow pour a little water, give a little sunshine, and it grows. And remember, there's a text early in Mark's gospel where Jesus is talking about the parable of the seed that grows. And uh, in the parable, Jesus says, and the observer knows not how. Right? The man knows not how. And this just speaks to the reality that science is never going to be able to tell us how everything is packed in that little seed or how the water and the sunlight and the dirt combined all of a sudden give it growth. Only God can do that. Only God can actually put these things into motion, even if through means that man can observe and therefore scientifically learn about. So what a great comfort this first line of the meaning is that God created me in all creatures, that every successive generation is a testament to God's creating work and presence. So he did not create just on days one through six, and then as the deist false religion believes, that he just sort of sits as a grandfather in a rocking chair and watches the world unwind. But rather, he is busy and he is active in the ongoing life of his creation fallen though it is, it still utterly depends upon his fatherly goodness. Every breath of oxygen we take, and think about how much we depend upon a loving God in in this notion, that God, if he were cruel and judgmental and just wanted to see this world destroyed, in a moment, he could simply pull all the oxygen out of the air and all of us would be dead in a matter of a couple minutes. And yet in his goodness In his tender fatherly care, he provides every breath of life for us with such regularity and such promise that we all take it for granted and we just assume it's going to be there because in a sense, we safely can assume it because he's a loving God and a fatherly provider. So he's created me and all creatures. So then the next line, he has given me my body and soul, eyes, ears, all my members, my reason and all my senses still takes care of them. This is true even despite the fall. Think about his faithfulness to us. My body is a gift of God and it should be treated as such according to the creation. It should live as such according to the creation, even though it's plagued by the fall. My reason and senses should interpret this world through the lens of the creator, not through the lens of the fall, as if the fall is what is natural and good. And though my body is plagued by the fall, God mercifully still cares for it and provides for it. And that leads to how he provides for it in Luther's meaning, that he gives me clothing and shoes, house, home, wife, children, land, animals, all that I need for this body and life. What I would say regarding this is 
if we take a close look at the difference between that paragraph about what God has given me, he's given me my body and soul, my eyes, ears, and all my members, compare that to the following paragraph, that he also gives me clothing and shoes, house, home. And notice what is missing in that second paragraph. It's that little word, my. There's nothing that I have ultimately belongs to me. In other words, I did not acquire it apart from God's gracious provision of it. Now, we talked a few episodes ago about the seventh commandment and saying that there is such thing as private property. So it is true that there are certain things that are mine in relationship to my neighbor, but in relationship to God, nothing is uniquely mine. There's nothing that I built or that I made for myself that is good and godly, that God himself did not provide me. And so, in a sense, if nothing that I have belongs to me unless it's provided to me from God, then why try to hoard what doesn't belong to me? Just use it for your daily benefit. As we pray in the Lord's Prayer, give us this day, our daily bread. But we use it, therefore, always with faith that it might be to God's glory, to the benefit of my neighbor, to my own benefit as God gives it for my goodness. This is sort of what we mean when we talk sometimes about the idea of using it with faithful stewardship, is with faith that God has provided this for a particular time and season and reason, where to care for it, use it properly in faith, because it's all his, and he can take it away when he knows we no longer need it, and he can supply it far more perfectly then we could ever acquire it and work for it and grasp for it. But he will take it away when we no longer need it, even if we think and assume and believe to the fullest that we still need it. There's that passage in the scriptures that is often used at funerals, for example, that reminds us that God in his infinite goodness can even take away from us our dearest loved ones. And yet he is still providing for us as he knows is best for us. The Lord giveth, the Lord taketh away, blessed be the name of the Lord. And that should always be our confession because of the joy and the comfort of this first article, that the God who gave his son as a ransom for many, that that God is a God who loves, that God is a God who created his creation, who still preserves and safeguards and and cares for his creation. Uh, Because he always works through means, it will sometimes seem like we are acquiring because he gives us a body to work. And he says, yes, in the life of the fall, it will feel like toil at times, but I give you this body to work. Uh, But sometimes he also gives it as a gift and provision of daily bread, perhaps through the hands of someone else. But only because he has given us a body to do the good work of creation as he gave us to do and through which he provides, because of that, and only because of that, can we rejoice even in our daily labor. And we can know this is part of God caring for us, God providing for us. This is part of, as uh, one of the famous CPH books uh, written by a wonderful lay theologian named Gene Veith, uh, he titles the book, God at Work. This is God at work in daily life, God at work in whatever vocation he's given me to do for my neighbor, but also then as God in the first article of the creed providing for my daily life. So God instituted work as part of creation before man would ever selfishly ask, yeah, but what do I get out of it? He says, no, you just work and tend to the fields and carry out that good stewardship because I am your God and I will provide for you as I know is best for you, because I'm the God who created you. 
And we confess all of this in the simple line, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. Lastly, Luther says here, he defends me against all danger and guards and protects me from all evil. Again, often working through means and instruments, even in creation, we sometimes slip into the mode of thinking that it's the doctors and nurses and vaccines and therapeutics that safeguard my life. And we even say things like, they saved my life. I would encourage Christians to think carefully about, in our English language, think carefully about delineating between the idea of saving my life and safeguarding my life, even physically. It's not so much that they save life, which is what God does when we talk about second article stuff, but that they safeguard and preserve as God has given them the vocation to do. And he works through their hands and through their skills to safeguard my daily life. And so this is a very comforting article for us, that God is very actively part of daily life. And this is also, I would argue, an article that, sadly, I think the Christian forgot in the 20th century. Uh, I tend to think that this article, uh, and maybe I'd even dub it the forgotten article of the 20th century church in the Western world, because we all focus very well on the idea that God loves me and gave his son to die for me. We all focus on redemption. We all focus on Jesus dying on the cross. And we all focus on the life of the church and the forgiveness of sins uh, and God continuing to care for my faith. But let's be honest, in our society, especially as evolutionary theory took hold, people thought that they could hold to redemption apart from creation, uh, that maybe God isn't part of daily life, but he's just part of Sunday morning. As our fairly well-ordered capitalism has sort of collapsed into consumerism and all of us have become materialists and reduced the scriptures down to the very nub of the gospel, and we say, well, yeah, I'm a sinner and Jesus died for me, but then we convince ourselves that daily life is really just whatever I make of it for myself and scratch and claw and sort of dog-eat-dog world out there. We've forgotten just how completely our entire lives depend on and can trust in the love of God. And so when I can say that I have, to this date, survived COVID, it's not because the world safeguarded me, nor is it because Jesus died on the cross for me. That's an interesting one to think about. I don't know if anybody listening uh, recalls that at the, toward the very beginning of COVID, uh, now a good year and a half ago almost, um, one of the media outlets was interviewing Christians, and I think they were, uh, you know, try to give them the benefit of the doubt. They perhaps were trying to be fair with it, but they certainly interviewed them in the light of saying that these people didn't feel that they needed to use any safety precautions because they had the power of God covering them. And one of the ladies that was interviewed said, specifically said, and this was almost, if I'm remembering correctly, it's almost a uh, direct quote. She said, I'm not going to get COVID because the blood of Jesus covers me. Well, that's sort of a misunderstanding, isn't it? The blood of Jesus covering me is about the forgiveness of sins, but rather God caring for me through first article gifts is about the first article of creation. And so this first article, really we, we ought to do a wonderful job in this new century of trying to really encourage Christians how much they can take comfort in knowing that God is at work in daily life and he cares for the body just as he cares for the soul. It's because I have a God who always daily protects this body and life until he is ready 
to call me home to the inheritance that Christ has earned, as we confess it in the second article. It's because of all of that that I can live daily life without any fear, without any anxiety, without any apprehension, because I have a God who provides for me, just as he's a God who created me at one time in history. So we would do well as Christians in the 21st century to better appreciate this and what it means that just as I cannot save myself, neither can I provide for or defend myself in daily life. As Lutheran parents, and I include myself in what I'm about to say here, and as Lutheran parents, I think we've done a great job in teaching our children that Jesus died for them and even teaching children to look to the word and the sacraments for the chief gift of the forgiveness of sins and to build their lives around each week's central hour of the divine service. But I'll also include myself in here that as Lutheran parents, perhaps we struggle not to show our children our anxieties about first article stuff, money, property taxes, health, as if God has interest in the soul that he saves, but not in the body that he created and that he will one day raise from the grave. So recall that he loves and takes interest in the body as well, not just loving the soul, but promising the body life everlasting as well. And that is rooted in this reality of creation, that he promises the body resurrection specifically and precisely because he created it. And he has created me to be not just a soul trapped in a body, but rather to be body and soul. And that comes up again in the third article. And so uh, what, a, what a comforting beginning to the entire Apostles' Creed, uh, as we now look at it in order, first article, second article, third article. What a comforting beginning to think, I have a God who loves me and a God who created me and therefore, in a sense, is jealous toward me and wants what's best for me because what creator would hate his creation and seek to destroy his creation? Noah, the creating God is the God who loves and cares for and provides for his creation. And so therefore, I can live a quiet and peaceable life, call upon the God who saved me from my sins to also continue to daily guard and protect and provide for me in this life until he's ready to bring me to the life of the world to come. Or as the first article meaning concludes, uh, when Luther says, for all this, for all of his fatherly goodness toward me, it is my duty to thank and praise, serve and obey him. This is most certainly true. I like how you've set up here for us that this article oftentimes is so forgotten in our modern age, and yet we do well to recall its teaching. As I often say on the show, I think about 92.7% of our problems in the world and as we live our lives in this world could be better Uh, could be more faithfully lived if we better understand our catechisms. And so I like what you've laid out here for us. It it teaches us about true stewardship. It teaches us about how we live our life in this world, in this reality that Christ has saved me body and soul. And that creative work is all wrapped up in this. And that's very important. And as you said, also is going to get picked up in the third article as well. So we're going to go ahead and pause here, take an early break here today as we have now covered two articles, last week spending it on the second article, and today so far the first article. We'll pick up the third article on the other side of the break, so please join us for that right after this. That's our catechist, Pastor Mark Bessel. I'm your host, Pastor Sean Smith. You're listening to Concord Matters on KFUO. The 
word of Christ comes forth from his mouth as a sharp, two-edged sword. By that word, he puts our sin to death, and he raises us to new life in him. Join me, Pastor Timothy Apple, on Sharper Iron every weekday morning at 8 a.m. here on KFUO, as guest pastors from around the world lead us into the word of God to help us sharpen our faith in Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Welcome back to Concord Matters as we continue our series, The Catechized Life, and talking with our catechist for this series, Pastor Mark Bestel. And we have now covered two articles of the Creed. We jumped in in the middle, the second article, and looked at the work of Christ for our salvation, who reveals to us the Trinity. Christ is the full revelation of God, the Word incarnate for us. And then we backed up and we took the first article here in the first part of the show. And Pastor Bessel, you said in the first part of the show that the first article of the Creed often neglected in our modern times. Uh, we don't maybe spend enough time really pondering the great richness and depth of what it teaches us for our daily living and how that influences our daily living. I would also argue, and I look forward to your catechesis lesson here on the third article, that I, at times I don't know if we spend enough time pondering the third article as well, I think, as you rightly set up, a lot of times we as Lutheran parents or just as Lutherans in general, we do, as we jumped in there in the second article, teach so well that Christ is my Savior from sins and promises me life everlasting. But we sometimes neglect the teachings of the creative work of God and the sanctifying work of God. And I, I don't think it's an outright omission. I think it just we maybe don't give these enough consideration as well. So go ahead and give us your catechesis lesson here then on the third article. And I'll go ahead and read that for us first. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Uh, all right, Pastor Bessel, go ahead and take it away for us on the third article. You and I were talking at the break, Sean, that this is a big article, and it's something that as you rightly said, perhaps we don't uh, appreciate enough just how much rich theology is packed into this. And yet it's packed into it in a very simple layout that makes it so that, as Luther says, even the seven-year-old child knows what the church is. And it you know, sort of hints at this beautiful reality of the church being able to be understood in the simplest little fashion. And yet this is a huge article. And I often refer to the third article when I'm dealing with, uh, you know, when I'm teaching confirmands or adult catechumens. I often say the third article is basically the now what article. I think a lot of Christians say, yay, Jesus died on the cross for me. Well, now what? Right? We don't know what to do with that. What does that have to do with daily life? What does that have to do with ongoing life in the church? The third article is really the now what article in this regard. The first two articles have one eye on God's past work and one eye on God's present work. In the first article, you have the six days of creation, right? The original, if you will, the ex nihilo creation. And then you have the successive creation uh, and or creating work of God through each generation. And so from the first creation to the present ongoing provision. Second article is justification. It is finished, right? It is accomplished. And then, in a sense, the present ongoing intercession 
of Jesus. When Luther says in the meaning in the second article that I may be his own and live under him in his kingdom and serve him, there's sort of there's sort of a hint at the future that he will come again to judge the living and the dead. But this third article is definitively present to future focused in a way that perhaps we would admit that the first two articles are more of a past to present focus. And sadly, most divisions that we know in the Christian church that sort of separate what we refer to as the denominations, sadly, most of the divisions seem to be over third article questions. And third article questions of how the Holy Spirit works, how the completed history of the cross now benefits us today, and how we are then as the church to live thinking in the present tense and the future tense, and therefore I call it the now what article of the creed, because the life of the church is not an archaic relic of the past. You know, cynics like to paint the church as basically trying to hold on to past traditions for past tradition's sake, that we simply sit here and dwell on the past, and that there's really no future present usefulness to the church we're just a bunch of traditionalists. That's not true at all. The life of the church is living and active, just as living and active as Luther says the individual's faith is. It is living and active in the present tense. It looks forward to the last day and eternal life. So how does the third article explain this life of the church as the work of the Holy Spirit? That's why we should appreciate the beautiful simplicity of how it is laid out. When I was little, and before I was catechized uh, in my father's confirmation classes, I used to think that the third article was simply, I believe in the Holy Spirit. And then because I didn't know what else to say about the Holy Spirit, I just went on to other random lines that we believe about Christianity. Oh, yeah, I also believe in the church, and I also believe in forgiveness, and I also believe in resurrection. And I didn't realize until being taught in confirmation how those all connected to one another and how really this is all about the ongoing now what work of the Holy Spirit whom Christ promised to send from the Father, you know, as we say in the Nicene Creed, proceeds from the Father and from the Son. Why? To do the now what work that sustains the life of the church. So this life of sanctification with which the Holy Spirit blesses the church is sadly what so many Christian church bodies out there have failed to be able to properly comprehend, if you will, or faithfully interpret in the scriptures and draw out of the scriptures and be able to hand to the people and say, fear not, the work of the cross, the benefit of the cross is yours. It is yours as a gift from God. And sadly, when you think of the many Christian church bodies out there, so much of the now what is what the Christian is supposedly doing for God to sort of bring himself back to God, to make his decision for Jesus, to do good works so as to show that I deserve to be saved. All of these different things that the Christian is saying in response to the cross, now what? Now I have to do my part. When the third article of the creed says, no, now what? Now Jesus keeps his promise to send the Holy Spirit from himself and the Father, and the Holy Spirit will not speak on his own accord, but he will take whatever is Christ's and he will give it to us. And Christ says, all that I have is from the Father, and vice versa, all that the Father has, he has given to me. And therefore, I said, he will take what is mine and declare it to you. And so we have this great joy 
in realizing that the life of the church is nothing less than God continuing to care for his people and God continuing to daily and richly bring the benefits of the cross right to us so that we do not have to wonder after 2,000 years after the cross, we never have to ask the question, now what? So I believe in the Holy Spirit. What is this work of the Holy Spirit? To declare and to bring to us what is Christ's, what Christ has earned for us, to break stone hearts with the law and give hearts of faith with the gospel. We even confess in the Nicene Creed that it is the Holy Spirit. I mean, this is a phrase that people, I think, often would assume is a phrase that belongs to Jesus when they say that I believe in the Lord and giver of life. They say, well, that sounds like something that Jesus did on the cross for me. But no, it's actually the phrase that is confessed of the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit gives the life that Jesus earned as our inheritance and as the great treasure and the spoils of war that he freely shares with us through the work of the Holy Spirit. And so as Christ pours out the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, he says, you know, through the Apostle Peter, he says, repent and be baptized every one of you for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the gift that is the Holy Spirit, right? The gift of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Because the Holy Spirit can come in judgment. Jesus even says that the Holy Spirit will come and he will judge the world concerning sin and righteousness. And there's a, a sort of a fear factor for the idea of the coming of the Holy Spirit apart from the promises of Christ. But in the promises of Christ, this is a most beautiful gift, a life-giving gift, a life-preserving gift. And, and when I use the word life there, I mean not just daily bread life, but the life of the new creation. So if the first article is a reminder of God's creation and preservation of the first creation, the third article is, if you want to use the phrase, it is the article of the creation and preservation of the new creation of the life of the church uh, as it awaits the full revelation of that new creation on that uh, glorious final day. So it also is a reminder to us of the source of faith, that faith does not come from within the individual, but faith comes from without. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of Christ, Paul says to the Romans. Again, as I just mentioned from uh, Acts chapter 2, repent and be baptized and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So by word and baptism, the Holy Spirit brings faith. And this is why Jesus says the one unforgivable sin is the sin against the Holy Spirit. In that interesting passage there in Mark, Jesus says, any blasphemy that is uttered against the Christ can be forgiven. Imagine that, that here God has promised his Christ from the very fall of Eden, and he's promised it for all these centuries. And Christ says, yes, people will blaspheme me. That can be forgiven. But to deny the work of the Holy Spirit, to reject how the Holy Spirit works, that cannot be forgiven, because there is no forgiveness apart from the Holy Spirit. As we confess in the Creed, I cannot by my own reason or strength believe in Jesus Christ, my Lord, or come to him, but the Holy Spirit has called me by the gospel, enlightened me with his gifts, sanctified and kept me in the true faith. Faith only comes from and comes by the work of the Holy Spirit. If he's the one who gives faith, then he's also the one who must sustain it. He cannot give it to me and I sustain it, but rather he gives it to me and he sustains it through those very means he has set up. And he says, here, here is life. 
here is the benefit of the cross to you. In fact, we'll talk about this when we get into the second half of the catechism. But think of how when Jesus, well, think of the hours of the cross and how each of the, what we would term the sacraments, and if you're going to include uh, absolution in there, each of those is given in the shadow of the cross one way or another. The Lord's Supper is given in the hours before his betrayal. Absolution is given on the night, on that first evening of the week, on Easter evening. And then baptism is given in, in the days or maybe even hours before his ascension. And all in the shadow, if you will, or in the context, maybe is a better word, of the cross, all of these are given as Jesus saying, here is how you receive the benefits. But all of these are the work of the Holy Spirit, right? All of these are are dependent upon the Holy Spirit being active for the life of the individual. And if faith comes to the individual by the work of the Holy Spirit, then faith comes to the whole church by the work of the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life. So sanctification is not the process, as the third article is often referred to as the article on sanctification. It's not the process by which we respond to the gospel. In a sense, sanctification is the process begun by justification. When I talk about the difference between justification and sanctification, I draw a line on the board. And I think, you know, one instead of a flat line at the bottom of a graph, put a flat line at the top of the graph. You know, a flat line at the bottom, people often think of death, you know, you flat line. Uh, but no, a flat line at the top of the graph means as soon as you are baptized, you have justification. It is complete. It is finished in Christ Jesus. It is yours and you live in the certainty of it. But at the same time, at the same moment that you have been brought into this reality of justification, it is certain and true. At that same moment, the process of sanctification begins. Justification is the certain declaration of you being holy in Christ Jesus, whereas sanctification is a lifelong process of wrestling against that old Adam who doesn't desire the benefits of Christ. And that new Adam is given to wrestle against that old Adam and live that life of sanctification that rejoices in my justification in Christ Jesus. And so this third article is a present tense, future tense reality of daily life, care by the Holy Spirit that not only gives life to the church, but then sustains the life of the church. Uh, as again, we say in the uh, meaning there, that the Holy Spirit has called me by the gospel, enlightened me with his gifts, sanctified and kept me in the one true faith. So sanctification's process has begun. And if the word sanctification is about making me holy, then it can't, in essence, be my work, because I can't make me holy. I can produce nothing by my own reason or strength that is holy. So it can't be by my effort, or it can't be from my origin of work, because I can't make anything holy. It must be the work of the Holy Spirit. How does he do this? Through the forgiveness of sins, growing faith, even as it results in the fruit of faith. Think of some of those parables about the good works growing up, uh, some 100-fold, some 60-fold, some 30-fold. The number isn't all that important there, as Jesus doesn't give them in successive increasing order, but actually in decreasing order, 100-fold, 60-fold, 30-fold. It's not about saying who is the best Christian. It's about simply saying that the life of faith is a life in which the Holy Spirit creates good works for us to do. 
as Ephesians 2 says, that we are God's workmanship, right? The, the, the life of faith being given us through the work of the Holy Spirit. So the baptismal life is one of ongoing sanctification. Uh, all of this is true for the individual, but it's also true for the whole church, as we've already hinted at in the meaning, in the same way he calls, gathers, enlightens, and sanctifies the one Christian church, or the whole Christian church on earth, and keeps it with Jesus Christ in the true faith. So if the Holy Spirit does this for me, he also does it for every believer. And every believer put together is the holy Christian church. But this is why the church is invisible, because I can't see anyone else's heart, and they can't see mine. And so I can't truly know, other than by outward confession and by the outward marks of the church, and we'll get to that in a minute, we can't see who is of the church. And this is actually comforting in some ways. I know people think, well, I want to be able to see for certain what the church is. But the reason I find it comforting is because it means that I can hope, because God is merciful and God, the Holy Spirit, is active through his word and through his sacraments, I can hope that despite the sometimes the bad doctrine or the bad preaching of other church bodies or even, sadly, perhaps even individual congregations inconsistently teaching or practicing with the church body that they're in, uh, within the life of an Orthodox church body, I can hope with confidence that there are always going to be Christians in those pews or the auditorium seats or whatever the, the seating arrangement is, because the Holy Spirit promises to be at work where the Word is purely taught, where the sacraments are rightly administered. It's up to the Holy Spirit to create and sustain faith. It's true that red flags fly when you have bad confession and when you have an impure handling of the Word, uh, when you have an impure handling of the sacraments. Then yes, sadly, red flags fly. But thankfully, I don't have to judge unto condemnation or judge unto salvation. That's not my job, but rather Christ will be the judge. The Holy Spirit is promised, and the Holy Spirit works through word and sacrament to give life to the Holy Christian Church. And so as Christ has promised this, we can start to see the process now of the third article. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, right? That church that since the day of Pentecost— uh, and really, obviously, even from the day of Adam and even the first gospel, there's been the life of believers. And so the church universal is huge. Even if I can't see it, even if it seems to be the small, tiny fraction of the world's population, it is far bigger than I can see. It reaches into every corner of earth and every age of time. Uh, perhaps the closest we ever get to confessing it is when we sing in the Sanctus, or in the proper preface leading up to the Sanctus, therefore with angels and archangels and all the company of heaven. This is the church in heaven joining with the church on earth. So the church on earth might look like the ranks aren't many compared to the world out there, but the church is a beautiful bride for Christ that he cares for and that he grows the church up even from the size of the smallest mustard seed, and that church becomes a safe haven for every bird that wants to hide under the outstretched arms of Christ crucified. And therefore, when we imagine that, we don't have to imagine just being with the faithful of just my congregation, but rather I know that every time we gather at the altar, we gather together 
I like to say, whether it's to brother pastors or to people who uh, we just had a household move away, move to a different state. Uh, and as we were saying goodbye, I said, I will look forward to joining with you at the altar this Sunday. Even though it's at a different altar physically and locally, this is the life of the church. The life of the church is always gathered around the altar. And that sort of leads us into some of these subsequent lines here that the creed says, I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints. So we'll assume for a second that the word saints there is a reference to all the faithful people. And that means that this is a picture of this universal gathering that only the eyes of faith can see. They're seen visibly in the number of faithful gathered around you each Sunday. Uh, but notice that the church gathers, right? The communion of saints. The church membership is not about just a phone list and somebody that you haven't seen for 30 years. It's not a membership in the same way that you might be a member of a local gym or of Costco or Sam's Club or, or one of these warehouse card carrying members that you might never use it, but you still have the perks and benefits whenever you want to make use of them. Uh, but rather to be a member of the church is to be one of the small members of the body. And as that image that I believe it was Luther gets credit for in saying that when one member uh, of, of the body hurts, the whole body hurts with it. You stub your little toe, the whole body is aware of it. The whole body rejoices at the repentance and the uh, rekindling of faith or the forgiveness of one sinner. Uh, all of the angels in heaven rejoice over that. The whole body rejoices. So this communion of saints these are the people of God that the Holy Spirit has given faith to individually and gathers together. But also that phrase in the original languages could actually be translated the communion of holy things, namely the word and the sacrament around which the Holy Spirit gathers those that he has plucked out of the world. That's what the word church comes from, ecclesia, to be called out of and into assembly. And so he gathers us around the holy things of God. Uh, we cry, holy, 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 right? That's the same image that Isaiah saw, the same image that John sees in Revelation. This ought to determine for us the great respect and reverence of the divine service, that we are not just a bunch of people gathering to think about a distant God, but rather by the promise of this third article, the Holy Spirit and Christ, with his Holy Spirit, gathers us together around these holy things that he might serve us and care for us. This is the life of the church. This is the communion of saints, the people of God around the things of God. And through that together, then, we have this reality of the mysterious life, heaven on earth, or as we refer to it, the divine service. There's no gathering of holy people if holy things are not used to make and sustain the people as holy. But what good are having the holy things if there are no people to benefit? And so you need both in a sense. You need the sinners who call upon the name of the Lord, and then you need God's promise to care for them and serve them in the holy things. So if you have this, I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, then what is the benefit and what is the purpose? That's the next line item here. I believe in the forgiveness of sins. There is the chief benefit. So many benefits in the life of the church, but this is chief and key to all of them. Because where the separation syndrome is silenced by the forgiveness of sins, 
and the application of the benefit of Christ's cross to the individual through the work of the Holy Spirit, then come all the other benefits, as we sort of saw even with the separation syndrome, where there's unity with God, theological separation is restored, then there's faith instead of the fear of the psyche, there's now faith in God, and then fervent love for one another, and then a new creation in the resurrection of the body. All there is being restored in the separation syndrome, all because of this chief benefit of the forgiveness of sins. Um, some people even think, uh, and we've had this conversation, uh, I've had this conversation with members before, do you go to church primarily to strengthen faith? I don't know that it's really an either or, but we never want to think that strengthening of faith can be done apart from the forgiveness of sins. I need a clear conscience before God. And that's what strengthens my faith, is that faith is not a head knowledge that just says, let me be as theologically uh, or have as much theological acumen as I want. But rather, faith is the clear conscience, as we hear so often in the epistles, that we would have a clear conscience before God. And so where there's forgiveness of sins, then faith is strengthened. And so, you know, why do you primarily go to church? Is it for the forgiveness of sins or is it for the strengthening of faith? Well, that's sort of the answer is sort of yes, but the strengthening of faith depends upon the forgiveness of sins. So the relationship between God and man is not primarily about your improving knowledge and emotional attachment to God, but it's about the objective forgiveness of sins in Christ Jesus. And from that forgiveness of sins flows all benefits that God has for the forgiven. And that benefit includes the next line of the Apostles' Creed of that third article. So I believe in the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, and where there's forgiveness of sins, there's the resurrection of the body. God did not make man to be a soul trapped in a body. The body is not the shell that hosts the more important soul. In fact, when you think of the original creation, God created the body first, and then he breathed life into Adam. And so the body is to benefit just as is the soul. God cares for the body just as truly as he does for the soul. Christ has compassion on the body, not just forgiveness of sins for the soul. But as we said with the first article, if God created this body, then now with the third article, this body too is a beneficiary of the new creation. Sadly, we live in a very Gnostic age uh, wherein people have given up the importance of the body. Uh, and I would encourage all Christians to really defend this confession of the resurrection of the body. Of course, we live in an age where transgenderism has attacked the body, assuming that it's the body that's wrong. Uh, people are quick to try to change their body, dispose of their body, uh, cremate the body, uh, all of these different things because perhaps the body isn't seen as being all that important as long as I have the soul. Our creed says something else. Our creed says that God promises the resurrection of the body. Interestingly, so much does God honor the body as his creation that all bodies will receive the resurrection on the last day. That's an interesting thing to think about, that the resurrection is not reserved for the faithful. Yes, sadly, the unfaithful will rise to eternal condemnation and eternal perishing, but even their bodies on the last day will be raised, as our uh, confession says. Now, this does bring us to the last line. How well do we understand the, the line, the life everlasting? Body and soul together, right? If there's forgiveness of sins for the soul and there's resurrection for the body, then body and soul together, when they're rejoined together as they're meant to be, there is everlasting life. 
Jesus talks about this. I am the resurrection and the life, right? Everlasting life. Or when he says in Revelation 2, I will give you the crown of everlasting life. We need to know this phrase, everlasting life. Life everlasting is not the Bible's flowery spiritual way of referring to a fairy tale ending like they lived happily ever after. It's a specific phrase that speaks to two realities. In John 11, Jesus says, Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live, and whoever lives and believes in me shall never die into the age. When we speak of life everlasting, we are also confessing that there is another option, and that option is death everlasting. This is what God defended Adam and Eve from in the garden. When he says, you know, uh, God forbid, basically, he says, lest they eat of the fruit of the tree and then live forever in the fall. In other words, lest they perish forever, let's prevent them from harming themselves forever. Instead, we now have, because Christ has reversed the separation syndrome, we now have life everlasting. We have life into the eternal age. And so this hints at God's completed solution to the fall and its separation syndrome. And here in God's plans is true life everlasting, the everlasting result of the baptismal life of those adopted into the church of God, which was once won back to its creator by the Lamb of God who took upon himself the sin of the world. And in his own resurrection, he serves his church through his own body and blood, already characterized by the life everlasting. So in summary, just to go through that third article line by line, I believe in the Holy Spirit, who is the Lord and giver of life for his holy Christian church. And that holy Christian church is the communion of God's people gathered around the holy things. And where he gathers us around the holy things, he promises the forgiveness of sins And where there is forgiveness of sins for the soul, there are additional benefits, including the resurrection of the body, and then body and soul together. True man, as God made us to be, we one day, true man will know life everlasting, just as Jesus himself in his own resurrection and his own ascension has already revealed that new creation to us. And then there's one more word there too, which is a beautiful word, and it says amen. And I like how Luther in his teaching in the small catechism of this ends each one of his explanations with words that give that amen to this teaching. This is most certainly true, he says, which I think returns us all the way back to as we began this series and as you set up for us in entering into the catechism, we live in a world that just doesn't know what truth is. And as you pointed to us several times, we remember that's what Pontius Pilate wrestled with as well. He said, what is truth? And this is the truth that we confess, and it is a beautiful truth to confess. That wraps up our teachings, our catechetical lessons on the creed as we continue to go through the small and large catechisms here. Then next, of course, would be the Lord's Prayer. And so with just about a minute here, Pastor Bestel, Go ahead and set up for us where we're going to go next week then as we enter into the Lord's Prayer and the Catechisms. We have now in the Ten Commandments, we have had laid out for us God's holy law, his good and holy law. In the Apostles' Creed, we have a window into the gospel in the sense of saying we have a loving God, not just a holy God but a loving God. So if the Ten Commandments shows us the holiness of our God, and the Apostles' Creed shows us the love of our God, and you can't have one without the other. 
you're going to fall off into some sort of a ditch somewhere if you just have a God of love or if you just have a God who is holy. You need both. We need both the Ten Commandments and the Apostles' Creed. And so where the Ten Commandments shows us the holy law of God and the Apostles' Creed shows us the gospel of our God, then the Lord's Prayer is actually going to, in a way, unite those together and show us law and gospel in daily living. And so this is going to be a wonderful section of the Catechism to say, what does this, in a sense, look like in daily life? Well, we certainly look forward to that as we continue this series, The Catechized Life. And we thank you, Pastor Vestal, for serving as our catechist for this series. And we look forward then getting into the Lord's Prayer. So join us again in the succeeding weeks as we work our way, continuing through the catechisms and into the Lord's Prayer there and the various petitions that we confess there. And thank you also, dear listener, for stopping by today. And until next time, keep confessing, church. 